0: Welcome. You're listening to In The Room, the podcast. Our host, international moderator and MC, Veda Sanasi, creates a meeting point to amplify the valuable voices of our community. From prominent icons to everyday people, In The Room is an opportunity to share their journeys, their perspectives, and boldest aspirations towards tackling global challenges. Ultimately, contributing to rewriting the definition of leadership for the 21st century.
1: This month of March is Women's History Month, a time for us to highlight the vital role women have played in history and contemporary society. Since we started this podcast, it's been such an honor for me personally to get to interview some truly remarkable women and discuss very important topics and issues of our time and how they are individually shaking the table in their spheres of influence. So this episode is all about them. I would therefore like to say a big thank you to all the women I've had the chance to host on this podcast for sharing your time, your wisdom, and for inspiring so many of our listeners thanks to the work that you do. So my gratitude goes to Letha Filderman, the president of PopTech, Joanna Sparber, the global director of Impact at The Conduit, and Cheryl Dorsey, the president of Echoing Green, for the work that you do to create global communities of change-makers. A big thank you also to Ebele Okobi, Facebook's Public Policy Director for Africa, and June Sarpong, the Director of Creative Diversity at BBC, for the work that you do on diversity, equity and inclusion, and for making sure that people of colour are honoured and treated with dignity and respect. To the scientists and leaders like uh, Marina Gorbis, the executive director of the Institute for the Future, and Yvonne Makolo, the CEO of Rwanda, I want to say thank you for your thoughtful leadership when it comes to managing through crisis, for instance, uh, a global pandemic like the one we experienced. And to the Afro-optimist, um, Julie Gishuru, the head of public affairs and communications at Mastercard Foundation, and Lerato Mbele, who is the presenter of Africa Business Report on BBC. I want to say a massive thank you to you for being such great global champions of the African continent and its people, and especially the youth. And my guest on this um, third episode of the season is another remarkable woman leader, the regional director for UN Women, covering 24 countries in Western Central Africa, Ms. Ulimata We talk about her remarkable journey from Dakar to Montreal to Johannesburg before coming full circle back to Dakar, and how she came to clarify her purpose in life along the way, which is to advance the cause of women in Africa and in the world. There is indeed nothing micro about women. Ulimata reminds us that there is still much to do, and time is pressing. But there is reason to believe that we can leapfrog some of the challenges ahead of us. My name is Veda Sanasi, and I'm the host of In the Room, the podcast. Ulimata, thank you so much for making time for this conversation. I know you are a very busy person, but we've been wanting to host you on this podcast for a while now. Um, there's so much to unpack. Um, so thank you for finally joining us.
0: Thank you, Veda. It's the me to be here and to, to share my journey with your audience.
1: Um, Ulimata, whenever I have a guest on the podcast, I usually like to start with the origin story, get to know the guest a little bit better. In your case, I'm very intrigued by your origin story because you're such a, a world traveler, you've been to so many places. But yeah, I'm curious to know um, what, what was it like for you, you know, growing up in, in Senegal? And, and what were your aspirations and your hopes and your dreams um, uh, at that point before you left for Montreal?
0: You know, I left Senegal, I was 17. Uh, my, my parents, particularly my mother, uh, was so adamant that we have to be uh, educated. And she, those days there was no internet, but she b- browsed through uh, magazines and brochures. And as part of her vision, she wanted us to um, study in North America. And she chose Canada because Canada was fully bilingual, uh, looked very pleasant and attractive. And then she decided that her children were going to study in Canada. And that is how uh, myself and my two other siblings all graduated uh, from business school in, in Canada, thanks to my mother. I think I had a very regular childhood uh, with both parents who were educated, uh, who were adamant that we had to study and study hard and uh, wanted us really to be good citizens, uh, loving, sharing, um, having really a sense of who we are, very proud Senegalese um and that's how we, we arrived in in Canada myself and my siblings and all graduated from from different business schools um, in, in Canada I stayed in Canada for five years um, I went I was 17 and I graduated I was 22 and when I graduated uh, from Ash uh, Montreal I was 22 and I came back to Senegal when I came back to Senegal I um, I think my, my early years in, uh, in say, gave us the opportunity to, you know, to work on uh, Africa and uh, having a sense of purpose in Africa. We were supposed, as young people, to go back to our countries and contribute. And we set up a network there called Réseau des Jeunes Africains. And we were very, very active, organizing Africa Week and making sure that We talk about development and how we want it to be, you know, change agents and drivers of progress. So at 22, young woman, I uh, returned to Senegal. Um, After a few months with a a very good friend who started a business school, I I joined Ernst & Young because Ernst & Young had a young professional program. um, And I joined them and I I, I joined them in audit. So I, I started my career as an auditor. And being an auditor in a small practice in Senegal, which was, I think those days, maybe 50 people, um, unlike maybe South Africa, where when you join Ernst & Young, you have to, to, to be a specialized person in a certain sector. The smaller practices, they give you an opportunity to actually audit all sorts of business, uh, financial sector, mining, uh, fast-moving consumer goods. And I think the three and a half years I spent there before I got married and moved to South Africa, were really very formative because then I could understand businesses I could understand the risks that are in businesses and I think it was an extremely enriching uh, experience working for, for for an audit firm and i I encourage young people uh, you know if they have an opportunity to do that uh, to take the to take it because uh, I think it makes you a very well-rounded um, professional in having an understanding of what it, how do you run a business and how do you audit it and where are the risks area.
1: So if I'm understanding you correctly, when you left Senegal for Montreal, you, you didn't necessarily know what your path was, but you knew what your mother had in mind for you and for your sister. And uh, So as you land in Montreal, I'm curious to you know what was on your mind? What, what were you personally hoping to achieve by coming to this new land. Uh, even though it was a totally different system
0: uh, as uh, the French system, I think we, we, we have to acknowledge the fact that the Senegalese uh, private uh, you know, schools were at par with the rest of the world. Um, I think very quickly I also saw my sense of purpose really came about seeing the diversity that was at university uh because when when we got into to Canada uh we found people from everywhere uh from uh, Cote d'Ivoire uh DRC Morocco and we really had that very 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 strong bond of being africans i have to say something really that uh, fascinated us and i think a lot of us ended up sending back our children into Canada is that canada was very accepting uh, i can tell the five years that I spent there, I didn't have uh, the impression at any time that, you know, I was unwelcomed. And I think that, you know, was so important. And it allowed us actually early on to create that network of Africans who wanted to go back to their own countries and change the world. I think really it's from the Réseau des Jeunes Africains at, at HEC that, that, you know what, we can make a difference. If we go back with expertise, we can definitely make a difference yes so if i you know i I loved canada and i loved montreal and i you know made some very very good friends but the weather was difficult and i think a lot of africans are totally unprepared uh, for the the winter in canada we were we didn't have the right clothes but i think after one year and you know a few lessons learned uh, you could see that we were dressing up a little bit warmer
1: so, by the time you were leaving Montreal to come back to Senegal, would you say that you were the same person? What, what had changed in you?
0: oh i think i I, I, I matured I think uh, having been away for for some years and being fully responsible for yourself, I think you have to we have to learn I learned a few things first of all, discipline uh, Because, of course, when you are not with your parents, you know, who are watching you to make sure that you show up at the university and all of that. um, I think all of us uh, wanted to make sure that we showed discipline. And then we did our bachelors in in the shortest time possible. Uh, I never failed the class the whole time I was at university. Because for me, first of all, my parents were spending a lot of money. I did not go there on any form of bursary. And I didn't want to disappoint. I think uh, I wanted them to be super proud of me. I wanted them to, uh, to, to trust the fact that the investment and the sacrifice that they were making, we were fully uh, conscious of that. And uh, therefore we, we could not fail. So I think I came back mature, uh, knowing that I had to be independent very quickly, uh, that my parents invested a lot of money in us and we could not disappoint. I, I could not disappoint.
1: Um, you said earlier that when you were an auditor, you learned about business. Is that what prompted you to want to go and earn an MBA in the UK?
0: So my MBA, I did not physically go to the UK. When I moved to South Africa, the University of, University of Luton, that is now called the University of Bedfordshire, launched in South Africa an MBA program. And people could could register and do it. We were a cohort of 25 people. And we were the only cohort, by the way, of the University of Luton in South Africa. which was a mix of uh, in-class and, and remote learning. Uh, and of course, with a thesis at the end. Uh, because after that one year, uh, I think the higher learning in South Africa didn't allow foreign universities to actually operate in South Africa. Um, and that's how my
1: MBA I did it long distance while working and it was very hard I can imagine I'm still curious to know did you feel it was a necessary next step to take was it a career move at that point or was it motivated by passion and interest
0: so in 2000 in two years in you know in 2000 it was very clear uh, to the to the world that a bachelor's degree was no longer enough. I think that's when we started hearing a lot about MBAs and uh, the MBA in those days was the holy grail. It showed that you had a bachelor, uh, that you had practiced uh, what you've learned in school and the master, master in business administration was the seal uh, you know that showed that you were able to put it in, you know to, to, into practice and, and it was really now anchored on, on, a, on, a, on a certificate on a diploma that the, the, the world accepted. I think MBAs those days showed that you were actually a very practical person and you were able to deliver. And that's the only reason why I did my MBA to, to further my career and really to, to affirm that I was an expert.
1: So, at this stage, you are married and you have a daughter beside family, obviously. What, what else occupied your mind at this stage in your life about yourself or about the state of the world?
0: I think, uh, you know, what occupies a lot of uh, women is that we, we almost have to be these super women. Um, I, I have to, to be very grateful for my nanny. I have the same nanny for the past 22 years. Um, and she joined our family when my daughter was two weeks old and she's still with us. Um, and she's, she's she, you know, I think today if I, was, I managed to have a career, if I managed to travel a lot uh, and still a, be able to, to run the house is because I had a trusted person. Uh, who was able to really be part of the family and, and help me in so many, many ways. I, I always mention her in all my interviews because I, I believe that she's part of the family. And a lot of women, uh, you know, need that support. You need support from your mothers, your sisters, your nanny, your husband, because it's really that coalition uh, that, that you, 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 st- you know, whose shoulder you stand on to be able to, to, to be who you are.
1: Would you say that your own experience of having to be a superwoman is that the reason why you say the status of women in society was the most important thing on your mind at the time?
0: Not at all. Uh, Those days, you know, I was not a, a gender activist. I think I was actually gender blind. I just assumed that that was life. Uh, my, my entry into gender equality and women empowerment really happened at the IFC. Uh, when I joined the, the IFC, uh, I think five, six years into my career, uh, I was called by our regional director and said, you know what, there's this women's network happening in, in, in Asia and we would like to replicate it in our region. Uh, and, you know, um, for always for corporate activities and they, you know, she said, can you can you take this on as an initiative? Uh, and, and we just did a talent review process. Twenty five women across sub-Saharan Africa has been have been uh, identified as talent. Uh, Twenty five of you guys uh, are supposed to be that first cohort of uh, the women, IFC Women's Network. And uh, and I I held the first meeting and I said to the women, well, it seems like we've been selected. Uh, these are the terms of reference of what is happening in Asia. We would like to replicate. Uh, would you be interested to have a women's network um, in Africa to to advance the, the, our agenda? Those days, we're just talking about diversity inclusion. So the conversation was really internal. How do we drive this agenda within uh, the, the IFC? And to to my biggest surprise, the women were not interested. They were not interested because, you know, being in an environment of finance, of development finance, of investment bankers, um, the women felt that they were being put in a box. Uh, Why me, you know, I bring $100 million a year in deals, just like any of my male colleagues. Uh, is this a way of saying that, we, you know, we need support? Are they going to do us favors? So women were extremely reluctant uh, to, to be part of a women's network. So eventually they took us on a retreat in Dakar. Those days I was based in South Africa. So they gathered all 25 of us uh, and gave us a facilitator that I will never forget. Her name is Susan. And Susan told us something that resonated with me to this day. She spent three days with us. We talked about diversity, inclusion. We talked about data and the data showed that as part of the, you know, the, the institution, the African woman was the least paid. We also saw that some of our colleagues were off-ramping as we call it once they have children. Uh, we also had the data that our careers were slower. And I think we, we really had an aha moment because the lady said, do you guys, do you women realize that you have a mandate? Uh, when your institution is making decisions of investment and advisory on the continent, at least one of you is at the table. And we're talking about billions of dollars in Africa. Your issue is not your male colleagues your issue is that you represent every single African woman that is not at the table. You have a mandate. And me, it was a defining moment. I realized that we had a voice. We represented something. You know, a lot of women don't know how to do their activism. I'm a lawyer, you know, am I an activist? Do I, you know, do I toy, toy in the street? What do I do? How do I contribute? And I think a lot of professional women did not know how to contribute. And I think our retreat in Dakar showed us that we had influence because we were sitting at tables of decision-making and we were the ones that were supposed to say, What about the women? You know, if you're putting this line of credit, do you have women targets for this line of credit? If you're putting this guarantee fund, how many women-owned businesses are are going to benefit from it? And if you don't do it, nobody's going to do it for you. And I think for me, that's where the journey started. I became this uh, woman empowerment and gender equality uh, activist, uh, whether you were talking about diversity, inclusion in our institution, whether you were talking about our operations, meaning our investment and in advisory, or whether you were just talking about leadership and representation, it became an issue of rights representation and resources
1: for me. Interesting, so how many years were you already into the ISC when this happened?
0: Yes, I was. Well, I think it was into my sixth year because I stayed on for, 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 for another four years and, you know, when you are passionate about something, uh, I think the stars just align. And then I started paying attention uh, to, uh, to, 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 you know, to women's gatherings. So I paid out of my own money to attend the Women's Forum yearly just to, to meet other women, uh, you know, from, from different parts of the globe on all sectors, ICT, you know, oil, mining, I don't know. And then I went and every time I left, I was recharged um, now somebody noticed um, at the IFC, everything, you know, I was totally branded Ulimata and gender, even on ALN. I mean, we, we ended up pushing the ALN to have, you know, a conversation with women. We still have a WhatsApp group, can you imagine, uh, you know, where we, we talk and share information. And I think it just became natural. And one day I'm sitting in my office in Nairobi at the IFC and I get an email from UN Women. It was from the HR director, He sent an email and said, you know, we have this position, uh, you know, in in Dakar. Um, You've been, you know, recommended. Here's the link. Uh, We would love for you to apply and join us on this journey of, uh, you know, putting in place a portfolio of women economic empowerment in in the UN Women. And that's how I joined.
1: So clearly the trajectory so far in your journey has been, about business and finance and obviously you are succeeding and you're climbing up the ladder and and then this comes up and did you feel comfortable at that stage that you were willing to make such a big shift?
0: No, it was so funny because everybody thought I was crazy. Uh, A lot of people would not leave the World Bank for the UN because they feel maybe the World Bank is more finance, more money, more this, more that. Um, and a lot of people ask me, you know, to take leave without pay. You know, like you can, you can, you know, take your sabbatical and go and do this. Uh, and I, I was in my room in Nairobi, and I'm like, if I'm so passionate about this, taking a sabbatical or leave without pay or some kind of a of, you know, meaning that I'm going at you and women, still keeping my strings attached and almost my parachute. Um, saying that, okay, if it doesn't work out, I can come back. For me, I had to make it work. And then I resigned. I resigned and I pressed that button and I trusted. I trusted the process. I just jumped off the cliff. And I think that's the best thing I've ever done.
1: <laughs> and I'm sure your friends probably thought you were having a midlife crisis at this point.
0: Absolutely. They thought I was totally crazy, that, uh, you know, how can I do this? But I trusted. There was something in my heart that told me that it was the right thing to do. I packed my house, my cat, my children uh, in a container, 40-foot container, and we headed to Dakar.
1: So this homecoming, is it something that when you were in South Africa, you ever thought was going to be a possibility that you would eventually, or you could eventually, move back to Senegal?
0: No, because we are also South African. You know, I, I'm a citizen of the world. We, we own our house in Morningside. Uh, the, the, the children love South Africa. We, we still go. So for, for, for me, well, I didn't have an agenda. I didn't, you know, plan anything and say, you know, by this time I'm going back or whatever. I've been an expatriate for 20 years. I lived in South Africa. I lived in Kenya. I lived in Burundi. So for me, I never had a plan. Uh, you know, I had no plans of leaving the IFC. I was happy, uh, you know, with my career. I was looking after, uh, you know, a very specific portfolio of uh, conflict affected states in Africa And, you know, working on my gender issues, the gender strategy, uh, participating in so many things. And then this happened. That email on that day, I actually need to find it and frame it, by the way. Because, you know, somebody just wrote to me out, out of nowhere and changed my life to this day.
1: Fascinating how that happens sometimes, isn't it? So you find yourself as a regional head of UN Women, yeah? Um, Clearly, a very different world as a professional. What was that shift like for you coming from finance and accounting? It's really um, so, so
0: interesting because the, the World Bank and the IFC is very business oriented. And when I joined UN Women, my role was to develop the portfolio of women economic empowerment in West Africa develop multi-year, multi-million dollar program and re- fundraise for them, uh, for the 24 countries that we, we our region covered. And we talked about entrepreneurship, and we talked about, uh, you know, affirmative procurement, social protection, climate smart agriculture for women. A lot of things that were happening were super interesting. And then I, I joined an organization of activists, where maybe... Uh, you know, policies and social norms and and like that were extremely important. And I think my first few months, people thought that I was talking too much business-like, um, you know, that I was talking about partnership with private sector. And, you know, the, for them, it was really quite foreign. What are we going to do with private sector? Are they actually our allies? Yes, they are. You, you know, they have more resources than any government that you can think about. And we want to drive this agenda. They are our partners. And some private sector gave us money. Then they understood that, well, okay, now we understand. So that was a very different world. They, When they saw the result, when they saw the impact, when they saw the resource mobilization, many, many, many heads of offices start calling, you know. I heard that Mali, got $5 million on women economic empowerment. You know, what can we do for Liberia? Well, I heard Senegal just managed $3 million from BNP Paribas. What can we do in my in my country? And I think that's how we developed the, the, the economic empowerment, uh, you know, portfolio overall. And then, you know, two years and a half into the job, the deputy regional director moves on to another position. Uh, I applied as a deputy regional uh, director. And one year into the job, the regional director also left for another institution. And that's how I became the head of UN Women for for Western Central Africa. Just a few circumstances that happened like that. But nothing like anything that I did not plan any of it.
1: It is interesting as you tell the story to see the dots connecting. Uh, I want to talk about, the highest level, the mandate of UN Women is obviously around gender equality and women empowerment. I don't know, Ulimata, if you watch uh, John Oliver, he has a, a late night show, and he has a segment on his show called How Is This Still a Thing? Obviously, he talks about things that are quite baffling, that <laughs> they're still a thing now in the 21st century. How is this still a thing? How is it that in the world that we live today, with all the resources at our disposal, with all the progressive agenda that exists in the world, we, we still haven't made enough progress? Where do you think the problem lies? You, you know, it's such an interesting question. And I will take
0: you back maybe a little bit down history line, maybe not too far. 25 years ago, women of the world met in Beijing, China. Uh, And uh, that meeting was so, so famous, 45,000 women. Hillary Clinton made a very famous speech saying women's rights are human rights, and which became a T-shirt up to this day. That Beijing meeting, women came out of it with 12 critical actions that talked about education, access to education, health, uh, contraception, the girl child, the role of media, economic empowerment, you name it. It was called the Beijing Platform for Action. 25 years later, countries had to make a report on those 12 critical points. And when we summarize all the reports, the Secretary General of the United Nations made a report that anybody can find on Google, Beijing plus 25 uh, report. And he talked about things that we've done well. So in my region, Africa, um, education was improved. So now up to primary school and in some countries uh, even up to high school, you have girls who who remain in school the longest time. We have less maternal deaths, you know, in in a lot of countries in Africa. But, you know, when we look at education and health, we still have a long way to go. And I, I summarize our issues under three R's. It's about rights, it's about representation, and it's about resources. And I will talk about representation. Today, you take a family picture of the African Union, heads of state. You will see no woman on that picture. And if they have a closed meeting, there will be no woman in that room to discuss issues of sexual reproductive health, of abortion, of sexual rights, you name it. Meeting today, 50% 50% of the population has no voice. You will find countries that are doing very well. You will find South Africa with a 50-50 government, Ethiopia, Rwanda, I think Namibia as well, uh, you know, Canada, France. But you will find governments in Africa where women still, you know, are 5% of the, the, the government. Some countries have taken upon themselves quotas. My country, Senegal, has a parliament, parliament that is almost 50-50 because of a law that says that if you are a political party and you want to have, a, you know, a representative in parliament, then you have to have a list, present a list of one, one man, one woman, and then otherwise your list is not valid. So it's, it's extremely important to, if we want to move the needle, that representation happens. The issue that we talked about on women economic em- empowerment is about resources, Women are tired of microfinance, better. There's nothing micro about women. And you will find a lot of countries who still keep the women in the ghetto of microfinance. Women are looking for financial instruments that are a bit more complex, you know, that is fitted to their businesses. They want credit lines, guarantee funds. Some even are ready for equity. You know, patient capital that will journey with them. Unless we change that, Women are not going to go anywhere, and of course, rights. If you go in the latest report of the World Bank called "Women, Business in the Law and the Law," 2021, you will still find the list of countries where women cannot open a bank account without authorization from their husbands or, or a male uh, family member. Those things are so passe. And then we talk about, you know, the ending violence against women during this period of COVID. The whole world, so. How violence against women has, you know, uh, exponentially grown, and in all countries, whether it was in Europe, in Africa, during lockdowns and restrictions of women, movement, uh, you know, women were stranded with with violent partners, showing what we call today the the shadow pandemic. It's a big issue. That's where we need our men. By the way, I, I always like to say that in all the conversations that I have, l- for the longest time, women have been doing advocacy alone, making drives, pushing doors, bringing chairs to to be at a table. We need our he We need our male champions who say, you know what, I support my daughter, I support my wife, I support my sister, and I'm not ashamed. If you feel something that is, is unjust, when you see a panel that is all male, you have to be that person to say, on this subject matter, Do we know any women that can talk about it, whether it's energy or ICT? I promise you, competent women exist. But we need our men to also have that gender lens so we can have social justice. Otherwise, we are trying to move the needle. They said that it will take us 170 years to have equal pay. It will take us 99 years to have equal representation. I think we cannot wait for incremental change. We need to leapfrog specifically in Africa. If we want growth rates, double digit growth rates that will take our countries out of poverty, we have to unlock the potential of African women. We cannot have fight with the world, compete with the world with our hand one hand tied behind our back, and that hand that is tied is the women and girls of Africa. We have to make sure that they are educated, that they have access to resources, access to land, access, equal access to opportunities. That's how we're gonna change the world.
1: You talk about how you can't wait to do this at the pace that is needed. and you talk about needing allies and you talk about men needing to be allies. What do we, we, and I'm here allowing myself to speak on behalf of men, What, what do we men, need to do to make sure that this leapfrog happens?
0: I think to bring about transformational change, we need to, we need to activate five levers, as I call them, with men, uh, positive masculinity. We need to address issues of policy and norms. And to do that, we need laws. So in any country where there's violence against women, you need a law that says it's not right. If you do it, you're going to jail. So the, the legal environment and the, the, the policies have in place. I talk about norms because you know, in, in, in our countries, we have traditional leaders, we have a faith-based organization, we have religious leaders. People who are extremely prominent in the community, those people have to play a critical role whether they're male or female. I know you know the, the, the famous story of a lady who annulled over a thousand marriages in Malawi. She was a female traditional leader. We have traditional leaders in Nigeria, male, who are saying, in my community, there will not be child marriage. So it's important that policy and no pillar is really worked on. The second pillar we need to, to work on is skills and capacity. How do we make sure that the women are educated all the way to tertiary in all sectors in STEM in this and that? How do we build the capacity and how do we build the skills? So the second pillar of of the transformation is about capacity and skills. The third pillar is finance. Because every brilliant idea that you have, every business model and every change that you want to make has to be paid for. So financing the gender agenda is extremely critical. The fourth pillar of the transformation is access to markets and access to information. How do we make sure that everything is known, that there is no information disparity, that there is no disparity in access to opportunities? That's the pillar number four. And of course, the last pillar specifically in Africa is the pillar of basic infrastructure, water, Access to water, access to energy, uh, access to roads, uh, technology as an enabler. In 2020 and 2021, it was very clear that today being digital, being connected, having access to technology is an enabler. And we have to make sure that the women are enabled. So I will say, Veda, that you will need to work on a really holistic approach work and push on all levers at the same time and to do that you really need allies you need allies in all sectors government civil society organizations scholars and academia you need that in private sector because it's all of us who are pushing this agenda together
1: you have been at this for a while now how do you personally feel about the progress made so far
0: I think the progress is very slow. I mean, uh, we need everybody on board. We need young people on board. We need older people on board. We really need the coalition of the willing. I have a good friend who calls it the coalition of the willing. And I think it's extremely important that everybody goes on the bandwagon of gender equality and women empowerment, particularly in Africa, because they will see that the data shows that the most developed countries right now Are the countries that
1: are the most equal. Shifting gears a little bit and and talking about something that evidently has been a common thread in your career and that's economic empowerment and entrepreneurship. One thing that I have personally observed about this idea of entrepreneurship, especially in Africa, is that it is often thought of as almost a silver bullet that will somehow fix all of our problems. I'm curious to know what What are your perspectives on this? Why do you personally believe in the role and the power of entrepreneurship on the continent, especially female entrepreneurship?
0: I think it's so, so, it's such an interesting question, Beda, because the women are already so active in entrepreneurship in the informal sector. COVID showed us that, you know, if you make a pyramid, uh, at the bottom of that pyramid, you have brilliant women who hold half the sky. They are the cross-border traders from Mozambique into South Africa. They are the cross-border traders from Nigeria to Ghana. They are really the, the women who are making business, selling, you know, things on the side of the, the street, but who are so, so, so informal. So the entrepreneurship in Africa is vibrant. But today, if you look at your, you know, your, your, the, the economy doesn't account for all those people. Actually, they're all listed as not working. You know, uh, but if they were not working, we were having riots every day because that's informal sector is holding a large chunk of our our, our um, economies. You step a little bit on, you know, after informal, you go into entrepreneurship. I see a wealth of opportunity that as, you know, as uh, countries, as private sector, we don't seize. Today, I always tell, you know, private sector when we, when we talk, I tell them to do their, their gender audit. I see you are a big business, you are Vodacom, you MTN, you are, I don't know, whichever business you are in. I always ask them the same question. How many business, women-owned businesses provide you with goods and services? Do you know? Because the body of research shows us that around the world, women-owned businesses have access to up to 10% of procurement globally, whether it's public or private. So it's extremely important that they the, the 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 large companies the anchor companies as I call them play that critical role on really helping that budding SME ecosystem that we have in Africa by putting them in their supply chain by also putting them in their you know commercial the commercial side of their business I always tell that to banks how many women you know push your insurance or your banking because you are supposed to be a mirror to your, of your market. But if you are just a, a bank and all your bankers are male, you are missing huge opportunities. And we have excellent examples of banks who decided to have a whole strategy of attracting women owned businesses into their banks. And those banks have beautiful, impactful stories to, to say, and also a very, very clean portfolio. Because as you know, Veda, women pay back their loans. Uh, that's so many studies have shown that they are the best clients you can have. They're extremely loyal and they will bring other women businesses to, to you. And of course, I would end with that top of the pyramid, which is the seat at the table. We want really to be at decision-making tables, whether it's uh, women on boards, because in some countries, you know, it's a quota, in some others, it's not. Uh, but I think the leadership of large companies that are listed, not listed, public, private, it's very critical that they bring that diversity of voice at the very top of the pyramid. And for me, that's why I believe that Africa has to really encourage entrepreneurship and particularly women entrepreneurs.
1: Are there any initiatives that you or you and women uh, are currently working on right now that we can highlight for the audience so that they are also aware of where the biggest impacts can can happen and and where they can hopefully contribute themselves as well.
0: Yes, yes. I like to always share with people the example of Kenya. So Kenya decided some years back to give 30% of public procurement at the national and local government to women youth and people with disabilities. It's called affirmative procurement. South Africa has also some form of uh, preferential treatment where they give more points to women-owned uh, businesses when they you know, competing for bids. And Senegal has a 15%, Togo has 25%. So there is a momentum around policymakers making a deliberate effort Uh, through a woman or youth affirmative procurement to say, we're going to buy from you. Because as we know, our governments are spenders. We want that all over Africa. If I Every time I met a decision maker, I mentioned that. All it takes from you is a stroke of a pen. And then your administration would work to, to make it happen. That's why it is so critical to have data and statistics better because what gets counted gets done today you have a countries that are centers of excellence i will cite rwanda uganda south africa that are extremely good at gender statistics Uh, but you have some some countries that can't report if today you told them for on your budget we call it gender responsive budget do you know how many you know for every dollar that you spend how much is going to women and girls A lot of countries in Africa can't tell. And if you can't tell how many girls you have in terms of statistics and data, you don't know how many girls' toilets you're supposed to build. And we know, as women, that in certain areas, in rural areas, when the the girls don't have a dedicated bathroom at school, when they have their periods, they don't go to school. So gender-responsive budgeting is extremely important. To be able at any given time, as a government, to say, are we investing in the most vulnerable? Are we leaving the women and the girls behind? That's really a
1: principle. Before I let you go, and and thank you so much, Ulimata, for such an enriching conversation. I want to know, at what point does Ulimata say, mission accomplished? (laughs) <laughs> that's an excellent question I always tell people
0: that retirement doesn't exist anymore I think we it's a concept doesn't exist anymore I, I see people who are 85 and who come and attend some of our workshops because I think if you, you have a sense of purpose you think that you, you know, you, you can still contribute, we will contribute, I will contribute until I die. Uh, you know, Chimamanda Adichie said something very interesting, that we are feminists, but we are all dreaming about the day when, when it would be totally irrelevant uh, to be feminist. that the world would be fair, would be just. And then our, our young children and our, our grandchildren can live in a, in a world where your gender would not even matter anymore. Uh, that's the dream. But... Uh, Taking retirement, I will never retire. I I think it's a you know if it's if it's not women, maybe it would be climate change. But I don't think I, I'll, I'll rest.
1: <laughs> so an activist for life, then. Hundred percent. Urimata, I cannot thank you enough for your time. This was truly a wonderful conversation on a topic so relevant for our time, and I'm sure that like me, our audience will find it informative and. And hopefully we'll move them to action, because that's what we want, right? That we are able to move masses and shake the table where people have influence. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Wow. I cannot say thank you enough to Ulimata for what was truly an eye-opening conversation. To the male listeners of the podcast, I hope after listening to Ulimata... I hope we recognize that we have much to do to be true allies in this fight. It is important we acknowledge the unfair advantage we have historically had. And I hope that we will have the courage to do our part to stand side by side with women. Or sometimes to have the courage to take a few steps back and to make way. And to the women listeners, I just want to say we honor you. We celebrate you and we stand with you. Thank you for listening. Aluta continua. Join us next time in The
0: Room as we co-create the journey to enable your life's mission.